Okay. Hello, hello, hello. I think everyone can hear me. Right. Okay. Hi, I'm Allison Case, and welcome to the first episode of For the Love of Row. So glad that you all are here. Sorry, it took me a little bit to get this episode together. I've been traveling around, um, just got a tiny camper called a Scamp. Uh, and I'll post pictures on the Instagram if you haven't seen them yet. I'm kind of proud of it. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're here with me today and that you're going to join me on this journey across the country. So a little background on me before we get started. I am a family medicine doctor. I just finished my residency, and eventually I'm headed to Albuquerque for a fellowship in advanced obstetrics within family practice and abortion care. Abortion care is something that's been really important to me throughout my training and throughout my career in medicine. I think I came into medicine with an interest in women's health. The older I got and realized how important it was to me that no one else would be making decisions about my body except for me, the more I cared about this issue. And then the further I got into medicine, the more I cared about this issue, the more I saw how dangerous pregnancy can be, the more I understood that it's absolutely ridiculous that we would ever ask another human to go through a pregnancy just because of something we believe. And uh, the more I've just talked with patients and seen the situations people are in, there's no one kind of abortion. There's no one reason people get an abortion. And it's just healthcare. So it's healthcare that should be available to everybody. So that's a little bit about me. I have this time off, so I have time off between now and when I start my fellowship, and I wanted, I knew I wanted to go across the country and camp and see the national parks in this beautiful country that we've got. Originally, I thought I'm going to stop along the way at different abortion providers and thank them for everything they do, bring them flowers or thank you notes or something to, you know, kind of offset the crazy protesters that are outside every day. Uh, but that kind of evolved and I decided, you know, this is an unprecedented time in our country when there are abortion bans cropping up across the country all the time, uh, hundreds since January, um, multiple that have actually passed and are being challenged across the country. I thought, you know, this is a good time to document what's going on and get on the ground and talk to providers, talk to advocates and see what can we do to make sure that this essential right to an abortion is not taken away. So that's that's the goal. We're going to talk to lots of people. Uh, I hope this will be a useful podcast for both veterans to the fight for access to abortion and new advocates. If you are out there and you want to get involved, but maybe you're in a very conservative space and you feel like you can't really speak out, or maybe you feel just uncomfortable because you don't know enough about the topic or what's going on in your state, I hope that this will be a catalyst for you, that it'll make you feel empowered and let you know that there's lots of us out here. There's lots of us out there. One thing I learned from being an advocate in a conservative space like Indiana is that there's lots of people out there who care about this issue, but sometimes they are not comfortable, and rightfully so, being super loud about their support. It's not always safe to do that in conservative spaces. So we're out there, and we can find each other, and you know we need to work 
together and have as many voices as possible, normalizing abortion, getting out there and talking about abortion so that we don't lose uh, the right to control our bodies. So before we get started, a few housekeeping notes. So each episode, I'll be covering one state, or in some cases, two. I haven't figured out yet exactly how I'm going to do it. Uh, Each episode, I'm going to try to do a few additional things. Since I'm traveling across the U.S., I'm going to be letting you know not just which state I'm in, but also what indigenous native territory I'm in. Uh, The narrative around the road trip in the U.S., often leaves out the uncomfortable parts of our past, like the land that was stolen from Native peoples, the fact that Native peoples were massacred. And uh, I don't want to do that in this podcast. I want to make sure that I acknowledge whose lands I'm on. So you'll hear that each episode. Second, uh, to borrow words from a Star Trek physician, I'm a doctor, not a podcast producer. Yes. So please bear with me as I navigate the podcast world. I know it took me a while to get this first episode out and I appreciate your patience if you've been waiting. (laughs) I act like there's like, you know, so many people waiting. It's like my mom and some friends. But yes, thank you for your patience. And uh, I want um, this to be as high quality as possible. And I'm open to any suggestions you got. If you know some people who want to help out with sound editing, real cool. Let me know. You can follow the podcast and my travels on Instagram. So I'll be posting at For the Love of Roe podcast. And I try to post on there the places I'm going and the really awesome advocates that I've met along the way. In addition to that, I'm going to be posting in the notes for each episode, local groups at each place I go, uh, and in particular, abortion funds for each place I go. So if you if you like the podcast and you feel compelled to donate, please donate to these state abortion funds. I will, again, paste the links in the notes. These are really, really necessary, really important funds that are helping women get access in places where it's very, very difficult. Uh, they provide transportation, lodging, whatever they can, uh, but they need funds to do it. So please consider donating. Lastly, for the housekeeping section, in the conversations around reproductive rights, trans men are often forgotten. So trans men also have uterus. And I am going to be pretty intentional about trying to, rather than use the word women, when I'm talking about access to abortion, try to use the word human or people uh, to just recognize this, that this is actually an issue that isn't necessarily just about women, but is for people who have uteruses. So anybody who has a uterus is at risk from legislation that restricts access to abortion. All right. Well, so that's all the housekeeping. Let's get started with our first state. So I decided to start with my home state of Indiana. I've been living here for the last two and a half years, but I've been coming home here on and off for over a decade. Uh, I've been so lucky to get to know amazing advocates in this state, uh, working for reproductive rights, working for access to healthcare in general, working for access to medicines. Uh, There's such a strong group of activists here, uh, but we are in a very difficult environment to be a progressive activist. Uh, Indiana is the trenches. We are Trump country. On the abortion front, we have some very aggressive, very loud anti-abortion advocates. 
They are very organized and they are very powerful within the state. And we've got uh, this guy. To cast the tie-breaking vote to empower states to defund Planned Parenthood. And that's it, Mike Pence. Um, for those of you who have been blessed to have never heard his dulcet tones, uh, he embodies, I think, the type of conservative energy that exists here in Indiana. Indiana includes native territories of the Potawatomi, Shawnee, and Miami. Most people know us for our agriculture, so we have a lot of soybeans and a lot of corn. And uh, I think a lot of people think that's all there kind of is here, but there really is more than that. True story, I used to live outside D.C., and I was in a supermarket there, like buying wine or something, and I had to show the clerk my ID, and he looked at me and he said something to the effect of, oh, is this the first time you've been in a grocery store like this big? Like he really thought that there were like no grocery stores like a Kroger in Indiana. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think that most of middle America is a mystery to people who live on the coast. So maybe this podcast will help to clear this up. We have many grocery stores, in fact. And uh, we even have abortions, but barely. And um, that's actually a bad example. So we'll move on. Um, we do have more than corn in Indiana. That's even a slogan for one of our theme parks here. Lots of people may not know this, but we actually also have one of the largest concentration of orthopedic device manufacturers here. We have the manufacturer of a life-saving diabetes medication. You might have heard of it, insulin. And uh, they happen to keep it so expensive that people are dying because they can't afford it. That's Eli Lilly. And we could do a whole other podcast on that topic. But yep, we got some winners here in Indiana. So abortion access, um, it is not great in Indiana. And I spoke with Dr. Caitlin Bernard, a full-spectrum OB-GYN provider from Indianapolis who provides abortions as part of that full-spectrum care about the restrictions here in Indiana. Yeah, we have all of them. Every law that has been conceived essentially by mostly really by these pro, you know, quote unquote pro-life organizations and have actually been then kind of what I think of as like infiltrated into our, you know, state legislature because basically it's copy and pasted from other states given to our lawmakers and said, you know, please try to pass this Um so they have all been passed here. So that includes a mandated um, counseling that includes medically inaccurate information. Um, then uh, that requires a waiting period after which or before which the, the patient can get her procedure. Uh, we have mandated ultrasounds, meaning you have to perform an ultrasound prior. The patient has to be offered the ability to look at. We have admissions requirements, so that means that as a provider, I have to have the ability to admit them to the hospital, admitting privileges, even though, you know, all of these have been found, number one, to be unnecessary, and number two, to be unconstitutional in the whole women's health decision in Texas. These laws still exist here because they haven't been challenged yet. So that's a lot, right? I mean, there's so many different types of restrictions. It's, it's hard to keep track. I think the other thing that is hard is that 
the restrictions cover bans on different types of procedures, and that can be really intimidating for new advocates who maybe haven't been introduced to this world and don't really understand what these different procedures are and what that even means. It's not like the people making these laws understand those things either, but for our benefit, I want to just briefly talk about the different types of abortion that are out there just so, you know, new advocates have all the information and can feel empowered that that they understand what's going on, even when the legislators don't at all. Some of them don't understand basic things about, you know, like basic reproduction. But that aside, let's talk a little bit about this. You decide that you want an abortion, depending on how far along the pregnancy is, you have different options available to you. Medication abortions are usually available up to 10 weeks gestation. There are different medication regimens out there, but the most common involves two different medications. So one is mifepristone, that's the abortion pill, and it's heavily regulated and very different from any other kind of medication. A clinic has to distribute it. It's got a lot of regulations around it. Mifepristone is taken first, and this will help stop the pregnancy from progressing and will detach it from the wall of the uterus. And generally, the procedure is then 24 hours later, the person getting the abortion will take the mesoprostol, which helps to expel the pregnancy. That medication will cause the cramping and bleeding that we associate with miscarriages. This whole process is very, very safe, and it's successful 98% of the time, depending somewhat on the gestation of the pregnancy. Let's say you either decide you don't want to do the medication abortion or you're further along than that 10-week cutoff, then you could have a procedural abortion. That involves a suction technique. So they use an instrument that will uh, apply suction it's placed inside the uterus, will clean out the uterus, and end the pregnancy. Again, another extremely safe procedure, very low complication rates, less than 0.4% by some accounts, which is similar, even safer than something like a colonoscopy, but as we'll discuss later, heavily regulated procedure. In the second trimester, it is sometimes possible to still do the suction procedure, but often, especially later in the second trimester, physicians may need to use a different procedure called dilation and evacuation. Many states have attempted to ban this procedure just in this past year. There's been a big push to try to ban this particular method, although it's the safest form of termination in the second trimester, low complications, although more complications than pregnancies that are earlier in gestation, it's very safe. You may hear opponents of abortion refer to this as a dismemberment procedure, um, and I don't think we should sugarcoat it. I mean, at this gestation, there sometimes is a need to remove limbs from the fetus to safely remove the pregnancy. What certainly is not happening is a baby at term being dismembered or somehow violently removed from the uterus. This is the kind of rhetoric that is spouted by opponents, and it's really damaging, especially for many who are in the situation of pursuing a second trimester abortion when they did have a wanted pregnancy. The majority of 
late second trimester abortions across the country and certainly in Indiana where it's really only available for this reason are due to a fetal anomaly in which the fetus is not going to survive outside of the uterus. So many of these are wanted pregnancies and it's really damaging to hear politicians talk about how terrible people are who pursue this, pass judgment on people for this procedure. It's just, it's a really traumatizing process for people. And we'll hear more about that as we go through. I just wanted to give some basics for people who maybe are new to this issue and want to understand a little more. So let's talk about what restrictions you'd face as a person seeking an abortion in Indiana. So you have decided an abortion is the right decision for you. You've talked with the people who are important to you in your life to make this decision. Maybe that's your partner, your family, even a religious leader. You know this is what you want. So what do you do? Well, first you're going to call the clinic and set up an appointment. You'll have to figure out how you're going to get to that appointment. Maybe you need childcare, maybe you need transportation, whatever it is, you'll have to get there. At that appointment, you'll have to sit down and receive mandated information from the state from a physician face-to-face. You'll also get an ultrasound. Indiana is not one of the states that requires you to look at that ultrasound, but the physician or the ultrasound technologist does have to offer the option for you to look at the ultrasound. Then you'll have to wait 18 hours before you can come back in to get your abortion procedure done. So you can imagine if you're traveling, that means you have to seek lodging for the night or you'll have to make the trip back home and back to the place where you're getting the abortion performed again in the morning. Let's say you live in Fort Wayne, where I'm from in Indiana. The closest provider is in South Bend, which is still about a 90-minute drive, and that is only for medication abortions at less than 10 weeks. So if your pregnancy is further along than that, you'll have to go over two hours and over 100 miles to the nearest clinic in Indianapolis. So again, we talked about transportation, but that's also money for gas, potentially lodging for the night if you're traveling that far. These just add more financial barriers to an already expensive procedure. Abortions, generally, I'm gonna I'm gonna give some general cost information about abortion. Again, this is a little different every place. You should check in your state and with your own provider. But generally, a medication abortion is gonna cost between six hundred and seven hundred dollars, and there may be additional costs for labs that need to be drawn before the abortion. And a procedural abortion is between seven hundred to a thousand dollars. Again, all these things are dependent somewhat on gestational age and your own provider. In fact, for women who are seeking a second trimester procedure, that dilation and evacuation procedure that we talked about, their cost is even more inflated. Because of the regulations that have been applied through state law to abortion clinics, it's basically impossible in Indiana to perform a dilation and evacuation procedure in the outpatient setting. So this is done in the hospital only. Now, this is not true in other states that don't have these regulations, but because they exist in Indiana, that procedure has to be done in the hospital. And because it has to be done in the hospital, the cost is significantly increased. We're talking multiple thousands of dollars for this procedure. This can be especially devastating for families that are, again, going through an abortion with a desired pregnancy due to a fetal anomaly. And the cost of the abortion is even more of an issue because most of the time in Indiana, the procedure will not be covered by insurance. It is absolutely not covered by any kind of federal insurance. So Medicaid, if you're disabled, Medicare, 
if you're covered under military insurance, abortion won't be covered. And that is because of a very specific piece of legislation called the Hyde Amendment. I do want to spend some time talking about this because it's a federal restriction, and so we'll see see it implemented in states across the country. Although there are some states who have said they are going to provide coverage for abortion through state state Medicaid. So in those states, people with Medicaid can access abortions. But in general, this is a federal restriction. So I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about it. Soon after Roe v. Wade was decided, Congress enacted something called the Hyde Amendment, which I mentioned before. This essentially blocks federal funds from being used for abortion. Every year, this amendment is tacked on to essentially the budget. So every year this is brought up and attached and passed with the federal budget to ensure that federal funding is not spent on abortion. There actually has been legislation introduced, the Each Woman Act, introduced by Barbara Lee, a congresswoman from California, that would repeal the Hyde Amendment. But that has uh, really been symbolic for right now and has only received Democratic support. Because undesired pregnancy is complicated and can be tied up in poverty and the cost of raising a family, and because poverty in our country is tied up in systemic racism, there are more people of color on Medicaid than white people. And because of this, the Hyde Amendment disproportionately impacts people of color. There's lots of data on this, but some of the data that I have from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that in 2014, 75% of abortions were among low-income patients, and 64% of those were among Black or Latino women. So with this in mind, for many poor women in this country, and especially for women of color, the Hyde Amendment is essentially a ban on abortion. I want to go back now and return to that state-mandated information and talk a little bit more about that because this is something. Uh, We're going to run into these state mandates, many of the states that we visit, and a lot of them have very similar scripts. Again, this is legislation that's from a pool of nationally available text for the most part. So this is, it's no coincidence that these are similar. One of the scripts I'm going to quote from, from a provider in Indiana, it says, quote, please note that the script from the state does not reflect my opinion and medical expertise regarding abortion care, which seems confusing, right? I mean, I can't think of any other medical procedure where I, as the physician, have to say that what I'm about to tell you does not reflect my medical expertise. That is very troubling to me, and we'll talk more throughout this show about what I think the role of physicians should be in this advocacy. Many things have disappointed me about the medical field, okay? We don't have time to go into all of them, but I would say the lack of action from large institutions that are, you know, physician-led has been really disappointing on this issue because not only is this the right thing for patients It's the right thing for providers. Like, I as a provider should never be forced by the state to say something false. That's just wrong. So that's the first thing that's confusing about this script, right? Within the rest of the script, there's a statement about the gestational age of the embryo. You have to describe the dimensions of the embryo. There's also a statement in this mandated script about the chance of survival of the fetus at, quote, this stage of development, end quote, which in Indiana, there is no stage of development at which this fetus has the chance of surviving outside the womb. Viability is the cutoff, and the majority, 
great majority of abortions in the state are happening far below viability in the first trimester. So this statement is clearly just there to cause the person to feel guilt about their decision to have an abortion. Really frustrating. At the point at which the physician must describe the embryo, the physician must pull out state-distributed images of the embryo at the given gestation and show them to the patient. And then the script goes on to talk about uh, the procedure. It includes this troubling statement that, again, the physician has to read that says, quote, the human physical life begins when a human ovum is fertilized by a human sperm. Again, in what other scenario would I ever, as a physician, be asked to support a statement that is not medically accurate? I mean, this idea of when life begins is not a question we will ever be able to answer, and the government certainly shouldn't be the one mandating the answer to that question. So uh, frustrating that that's included in the script. So we talked about some of the more typical restrictions that states have put in place, not just in Indiana, but across the country. For Indiana, we talked about the waiting period, the ultrasound requirement, a more recent restriction that was upheld by the Supreme Court is a more nuanced and insidious way of restricting abortion access. On May 28th of this past year, the Supreme Court upheld a portion of an Indiana law that was signed by Governor Mike Pence back in 2016 that required fetal remains to be buried or cremated. Now, that whole process can be extremely expensive, which ultimately will make abortion more expensive and make it more restricted for most people in the state. I spoke with Dr. Bernard about what this law will look like in practice. Um, So we were talking a little bit about restrictions. One of the things that's new in Indiana now because of the recent Supreme Court decision is this fetal remains law. Do you know like how that's playing out and what are we doing about it? It's very confusing to everybody. I can tell you how many phone calls conference calls I've been on with regards to what what exactly we're going to do about it and they um and it's very challenging. In the hospital, it's probably not going to change anything that we're already doing. Um so um that makes it a little bit easier. In the outpatient setting, basically we have to contract with some other type of a company that's going to be able to to uh, dispose of the remains in the in the way that the law says, and it sounds like we're going to be able to to do that, which is good. And we're hoping, as far as I know at this point, the amount in terms of cost that's going to be passed on to the patient is going to be very small. What that usually ends up meaning is that you know Planned Parenthood functionally is you know the main uh, abortion provider and other independent clinics are, are facing this as well has to eat some of that cost as well and so it's just you know it's just another way for number one um, my biggest my bigger concern about it is making women feel badly about um, about their procedure by you know, turning their pregnancy into something political, something where we have to talk about, you know, the way that they're going, you know, the remains are going to be processed. That's not something that women want to talk about for the most part when they're having this type of procedure done. And number two, the fact that we're putting more and more cost burden on the providers 
and the patients, hopefully small amount, but on the patients and the, on the provider and the clinic systems that makes it so that their ability to stay in business is just shredded. So we've talked a lot about the restrictions in Indiana. There are lots of them. And it can be pretty disheartening to be an activist in this space. You know, for many women in Indiana, because of these restrictions, abortion is already out of reach. Uh, so the question is, what do we do? And how do we come together and fight this uh, never-ending list of restrictions to find out, I talked with Jessica Bunch, who's a community organizer of Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky based in Fort Wayne. She's a true Indiana native, and she's lived here her whole life. So I grew up in Northeast Indiana, so I've lived here my entire life. I grew up in a small rural town of 200 people, nine streets, um, very small. One difference about being in like a small community like Fort Wayne or like Uniondale is you can really see a direct impact of the change that you're making. Um, And I really like that. I also really like that people are friendly here. They might not agree with you, but they're nice about disagreeing with you for the most part. Uh, It definitely gives you a small town feel of everyone knows your name. Sometimes that's not what you want when you want some anonymity when you go to the grocery store, but Um, In other aspects, it's nice to know that there's always people around who have your back. And uh, we did record this in a library, so there's a little bit of background noise. Sorry about that. Before I continue with some more of my interview with Jessica, I do want to point out something she said that I think is really important, which is this idea of the small town feel and like the Midwest nice. Uh, We're going to see that in a couple of other states that we visit also, and it's I think an interesting Midwest phenomenon where people are so friendly, but so, like, people are so friendly in general, right? Like, they talk in the grocery line and everyone says hi to each other. But when it comes to something like abortion, people can be very polarized and very aggressive. And because it's so, nowhere is the Midwest nice so very ironic as when it comes to abortion rights. Let's just say that much. Uh, But I will say that this is also something I've noticed when I talk with friends about race, like fellow activists about race, that in the Midwest, people are so nice, right? Like, oh, nobody's racist. People are nice to your face. But there's a disconnect when it comes to supporting systemic policies that will harm people of color, that will harm women. So... This Midwest nice thing is an interesting concept that I'm sure we're going to return to. And from your perspective as a, like an organizer for Planned Parenthood, where do you see, like, what direction do you see us needing to go as people who care about reproductive freedom? Like, what kind of actions should we be taking? Yeah. Yeah, I think we definitely were stronger together. So I think a lot of people have different opinions of what needs to, I mean, right now the world's on fire, there's a lot of things we need to fight for, right? Um, And I'm not saying one issue is more important than the other by any means, but I think if we all come together with our baseline of what we all agree on and fight for that, um, other things will fall into place. I think we need to be more strategic about what we choose. While it might be a national action to do something, it might not work best in that community. Mm. And so 
acknowledging that, that, you know, what might work for Atlanta doesn't work in Fort Wayne. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And understanding that difference, I think we need to make sure that we're including marginalized voices in what we do. Um, making sure that we have representation whether you're black or brown, queer or trans, fat or not, like just making sure that there's that inclusivity. Um, And I think we need to be braver and more strategic. I think a lot of times we're afraid that people will yell at us or um, that there might be some blowback, but I think we need to be not afraid of that and just um, lead strongly with what we believe in. In addition to the strategic approach that Jessica talks about, another concept that Dr. Bernard talked with me about was the strategy of normalizing abortion. And I want to make sure I point that out for folks because I think it's super important. So what are your thoughts on, like, how is advocacy different in these conservative spaces? And what do we need? Like, are there things we need to do differently? Um, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, being able to talk about it. I often have patients who say, you know, wow, I really, this, all this stuff in the news and, you know, politically it never occurred to me until I needed an abortion. And I, you know, that is across the spectrum. You know, most people don't consider the need to talk about this or be involved in this until they actually have to have an abortion themselves or potentially, you know, they have somebody very close to them that needs an abortion or they have a see a patient, you know, if they're a provider, see a patient um, that has to have an abortion or has had a complication from an unsafe abortion. Um, And, you know, so you really need to make it personal for people, I think. And I think that that's true, um, especially in more conservative places you know, there tends to be a difficulty with um, empathizing with an other, and women who have abortions are others to people um, in this world where they have been told since they were uh, babies that abortion is murder and terrible, and anybody who does that is terrible, and not us, not, we are not part of them, they are not part of us. So making it clear that, in fact, there are people um, in their community that have had abortions, they themselves almost guaranteed love someone who has had an abortion. I think that is the most important message because until it becomes something that that they that they feel some kindred experience with, they're not going to to believe that those are good people that have abortions. And I think the stigma that is created from not believing that good people have abortions it harms, you know, women who are pregnant, women who are not pregnant, women who are seeking abortion, women who are considering an abortion, you know, that stigma against them is, is one of the worst things that we can, that we can have, because then it allows people to create and agree with policies and laws and, you know, lawmakers who perpetuate that stigma and make it impossible for them to access abortion. I do think that there is, um, you know, some difficulty in the Midwest and more conservative places to have this, to think of abortion as empowering or this idea of shout your abortion that I am proud of having had an abortion or that I think it was a a force for good in my life. I think they continue to think that abortion is bad, even if they say, okay, I understand in this particular case that someone might have an abortion, they still think that it's bad. And anybody who talks about it being good in any way is is definitely not going to 
go well here. Um, even you heard that when one of the lawmakers in the in one of the the sessions for the DNA ban, you know, said that the the passing of the reproductive um, rights legislation in New York, you know, he just was disgusted at the fact that people were celebrating the passage of these laws um, protecting women's rights. And so it almost, it's like, it, you know, seeing other people celebrating something like that enrages people who are are that conservative. But but mostly, realistically, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what we can do for advocacy. You know, I talk to my patients when they say, I never knew that I would need to even face this until I needed an abortion. And I say, you know, great. The, the thing that you can do now is go talk to other women about having had an abortion. They say, no, I can't. And so until we're able to change that, I really don't know what else we can do. Are there, is there advice that you have for people who are just getting involved in this movement, either within healthcare spaces, so if they're medical students or residents, or without, like, just in the community getting involved, do you have anything that you think people should know? or Yeah, I think um, in medical spaces, I think it's really important to know the policies within your practice and, and hospital system so that you can um, really um, be an advocate in directly for your patients when they're facing these situations, because inevitably you will have a patient who will need an abortion um, and you need to know how to help them. Um, uh you know, most providers say, I had no idea, you know, that X, Y, and Z policy was preventing my patients from getting care until I had a patient who needed it. And I wasn't able to provide that care for them, or I wasn't even able to get them uh, to the place um, where they would be able to, to do it. And, you know, when you see women who are pregnant, ask them how they feel about being pregnant and, you know, try to understand where they are, because I guarantee you, not everybody is excited to be pregnant and most are considering what their options are and need somebody to be there just to talk to them about their options and help them in that direction. And talk to other people in your in your system because, you know, there are uh, lots of us who are interested in taking care of patients um, who are pregnant and need our support. Um, and, and having that community is really, really important. For people not in the medical community, again, I really think it's all about being able to say, you know, I had an abortion or I support you and you're having had an abortion, you know, that individual support is what breaks down stigma. And until that stigma is, is gone, nothing is going to change. One thing I'm asking every provider in each state that I visit, because we're at such an important and unique time where there are multiple challenges to Roe v. Wade and a Supreme Court that is stacked to potentially overturn it. I'm asking each person I interview what they think will happen if Roe v. Wade falls in their state. I talked with Dr. Bernard about this, and there was a palpable silence for many seconds before she answered, which I think just just shows how heavy and tangible and very real the possibility is that this could happen. One of the things I'm asking folks every place I go is, what do you think will happen if Roe falls? What do you think will happen in Indiana? I think in the next legislative session, they will they will pass a law that is some type of this similar type of probably six week, you know, heartbeat bill in quotes, air quotes here. 
ban, which again, functionally is just 100% designed to prevent women from being able to get abortions. And, and it will, it will work. I mean, it already has worked. You know, we're already seeing women from these states where bans have passed thinking that it's now illegal for them to get an abortion in their state and they can't get one. And so they're not even seeking them out. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the number of patients being seen at abortion clinics in Ohio drastically fell the week after the ban was passed because people don't understand our legislative system. They don't even understand, you know, they don't even understand the way that a bill is passed, much less the ability for us to appeal them or for, you know, to have to go through the court system. That is not something that people have any concept of whatsoever. And so when they hear, you know, in the news, abortion ban passed in Ohio, they stay at home because they think that they have no options anymore. And, you know, in some ways that's really frustrating because it, is showing the role that the press and, you know, us as speakers about these issues have, you know, the effect that we have and the fact that people think that they can't, that they don't have any more options is totally allowing uh, the system that they're trying to to create happen. So long story short, in many ways, I, I think that, you know, the bans on abortion are already happening. They're already going into effect functionally. And it, the same will happen in Indiana once Roe versus Wade passes. If that were to happen here, is that, would you consider leaving Indiana? No, I mean, I think, you know, our job, you know, the reason that we're here is to make sure that women can get their abortions. If that doesn't happen in in this state, then we will set up a system by which they're able to get to Chicago. I mean, we're lucky enough to be only hours away from Illinois, and that will be our safe haven, and we will figure out a system by which to get women there. One of the things I'm interested to see is where these kind of safe havens going to end up being. There's not going to be that many of them around the country. And I think it'll be pretty overwhelming for those places to take people. Yes. And I think, you know, again, the key is just to figure out how to make that least possibly burdensome on the patient, you know, to be able to figure out a way that can, you know, for example, do their preoperative exams here in Indiana, a way that we can be, have a center here that they can come to for counseling and logistical, you know, planning to be able to get them where they need to be able to go. And we are, as a community of abortion providers, 100% committed to, to doing whatever it takes to make that happen. It's scary to think that Roe v. Wade could fall, that this is a real possibility in this current climate, but it's comforting to know that providers like Dr. Bernard and lots of other providers in the state of Indiana are committed to finding ways to get patients to haven states like Illinois And those are across the country, and we'll talk in the different states we go to about where those haven states are in different parts of the country. But contingency plans are being made. We're going to help patients get to where they need to be if Roe v. Wade does fall. We definitely have a lot of work ahead of us in Indiana. There are concerns that in the next legislative session, they may target medication abortions specifically, which are already heavily regulated. Though I will lift up a victory because we have to lift up our victories when we find them. Just a few weeks ago, a federal appeals court ruled that the Whole Woman's Health Clinic in South Bend, Indiana, which has been battling a ridiculous licensing provision that was tied up in the courts, the appeals court did rule that they can continue to operate. They ruled that the licensing 
law is overly burdensome for patients, which it certainly is, and that this really necessary clinic in South Bend can continue to operate. And you might remember I mentioned earlier that for people in northern Indiana, South Bend is really the place where they can access care most easily. If that clinic were to close, people are forced to go to Indianapolis or even up to Michigan for their care. To put some perspective on this licensing regulation that has been overruled by the appeals court, it puts a license in place for clinics providing medication abortions, which the procedure for a medication abortion is is literally the physician placing a pill into the hand of the patient. There's a license that's required for a clinic to be able to do that, which is is unnecessary for lots of reasons, but when compared to all the other things you can do in, for example, a primary care clinic, like place an IUD, place a Nexplanon, which is a birth control, a rod with impregnated with hormones that's birth control that's placed uh, just underneath the skin of the arm. These are certainly very safe procedures, but they are more invasive than placing a pill in someone's hand. And I don't need a license to do that in my primary care practice, so why do I need a license to give someone this medication? So victory, standing with our brothers and sisters in South Bend, and we're very excited about the ruling that Whole Women's Health can stay open and continue to provide fantastic unbiased care. Thank you so much to our two guests on the show, uh, Dr. Caitlin Bernard and Jessica Bunch, for allowing me to interview you for the show. This episode is a little bit longer than future episodes will be because we did cover some basics, and I think we won't need to do that again in future episodes. Please do see the show notes for a link to the Hoosier Abortion Fund, and please consider donating. This is a fund that provides funds to help patients access abortion, whether that be for transportation, lodging, to pay for the cost of an abortion. Super important for people seeking abortion in Indiana. I'm headed to Michigan next, and we'll hear more from amazing providers and advocates there, and we'll talk to you then. 